Hello and welcome to the Second Row Podcast. My name is Porrick Kelly and as always I'm joined by Ushin Collins. Hello Porrick, you survived Christmas with the family. And so did you by the looks of things. Just about. <laughs> <laughs> we survived and we're back to do another round of Pro 14 action and what a weekend it was. Some incredible results and we'll go through all of those. But first we take a look at the rugby news this week. And I guess there's a lot of 2018 year in review articles. What was your highlight of 2018 Porrick? All Blacks win. For me, it was that pinnacle moment of Ireland, definitely number one in the world. Might not be ranking-wise, but for me, we are the best team in the world in world rugby at the moment. Nice. Mine is probably the drop goal in Paris. I was over there with my folks for my dad's birthday, so that was pretty special. Oh yeah, that's a great moment and really worth a pick. And look, there's going to be lists of everything for the next couple of weeks. Teams of the year, tries of the year, everything's of the year. But they're not as important as our moments of the year. <laughs> <laughs> On the other side of the coin, and looking at some pretty disappointing stuff this week coming out of England, Dave Ward, the Harlequins hooker, was spotted spitting at Thomas Young and then stamping on his ankle in the Quinns-Wasps game. That's disgusting. Completely scumbag, thuggerish behaviour. And as if not to be outdone by that, Steve Diamond gets in a fight with a journalist after the Sale Gloucester match. Thank Christ we are in a polite, mannerly league. Very civilised league, the Pro 14. Nothing rated of note this weekend whatsoever. Absolutely not. Well, at least any ill-discipline was of a rugby nature. (laughs) Yeah, most of the best behaviour was kept for the pitch. Exactly. Let's get to the action of the past weekend. And we start with the only Friday night kickoff. Connacht hosted Ulster and we won, thank goodness. Yeah, 21 points to 12. A really good result for Connacht, denying Ulster a bonus point, but failing to get the fourth try that I thought they would. Having said that, it was pretty manky conditions in the sports ground. I'd call it more greasy than manky. But yeah, you're right. It wasn't the best night in the world. But we played some really good stuff at times. I think we showed we were the better team on the night, scoring some really nice tries. You certainly looked more likely to score tries. Ulster were carrying ball well, but they didn't seem to be able to get through the Connacht line. The Connacht defence was really well organised. Yeah, we weren't committing players to the ruck and we're just suffocating Ulster when they went out wide. We just had numbers everywhere all the time. Well, the one time that Ulster did go out wide and got a try, it was down to a pretty brain dead moment from your winger, Keen Keller. But it wasn't even from a moment when they went wide. They'd gone wide twice across the pitch. It was the kick across when they still had penalty advantage. And Kane Keller just let the ball bounce on his head. Must have got caught in the lights or something because that's kind of unforgivable. It sounds like you're trying very hard to forgive him though. No, no. Excuses, but no forgiveness. <laughs> all right. For all Ulster's ball carrying, you were getting the better of them in the scrum. There was a couple of occasions where you were just driving them backwards like their scrum was on wheels. Yeah, and Bundy got a great try of literally a pop pass from Blade and he steps five players to run over the line from five metres out. It was simple stuff. Jared Payne won't be happy with that defence for it. No, he won't. And it was a real step backwards from the defending last week, which was pretty assured against Munster. But Connacht just seemed to be able to break down that line an awful lot better. Partly, I think they were just bringing a bit more dynamism to the attack than Munster had last week in Belfast. And for me, it continues that vein of form of Frolstra. Without their four or five key players on the pitch, they're just not the same team. Do you think they underestimated Connacht here? Well, I always felt confident of the win. Personally, I just think we were playing a better brand of rugby. But the sports ground is not a nice place to go. And Leinster proved early on the season they needed a full-strength team to get the job done down here. Yeah, in a game that was relatively close... It was Connacht's star players that were able to step up and get the tries that they needed. Bundy for the second one, and then Carty created another moment of magic for the third try with Blade completing it. It was a very opportunistic kick through by Godwin, and when Spade just dived in to tackle him, it was only going to go one way with Connacht going over. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, Henry Spate is irrelevant. 
the sooner he goes back to the Brumbies and ruins all of their try scoring opportunities, the better it will be for Ulster. That was his final game for Ulster. Yes. You know what, though? That Connacht scrum continue to do damage in the second half. There's been a couple of occasions where you see really, really good tight heads, particularly the bigger, more physical tight heads come down. And Dennis Buckley gives them a lesson in how to be scrummaged against. Marty Moore was put in Dennis Buckley's pocket at some point halfway through the first half and never escaped. He's such a beast in the scrum. If Buckley was more consistent, he'd be in Irish camps all the time. I just think he's so such a good scrummager and he's very good around the park, especially at the breakdown. Could you imagine taking off Best and Healy and bringing on Cronin and Buckley so you're not losing that breakdown work from the front row, but still keeping the carrying? It would be brilliant. I just think the challenge with that is he's probably not big enough at that level to allow for a smaller hooker. Maybe with someone like Niall Scannell inside him. But we digress. Yeah. I think... Ulster continued to try and put phases together in the second half, but they just at no point looked like they were going to get over that Connacht line. And the try they did score in the second half was because of our lack of discipline. Delana got binned for what was a team yellow, and they rumbled over them all. But for the next nine and a half minutes, they didn't look like they had an extra man. Part of that was that Connacht were really smart about their rucking. They weren't competing at every breakdown. They were waiting until there was real shots at the ball. But other than that, they were just getting into the line and making sure that they were shutting down all of the available space. A lesson learned from last week, I think. Painful lesson. (laughs) Look, as long as that lesson turns into wins, I'm happy. Fair enough. From a strength perspective, I thought Connacht looked really good going forward, but it will be a concern that they weren't able to get a fourth try. Whatever about the ball being a little bit greasy, when you've 35 minutes to get a bonus point, you expect to leave with it. I expect to get some score in those 35 minutes, let alone a bonus point try. It's very disappointing. Ulster, on the other hand, didn't look like creating much themselves ball in hand there was a lack of spark in that team there was which was surprising given how good Addison has been for them he's been a creative influence but he definitely works better when he's got Stockdale there and Billy Burns was missed as much as I rate Johnny McPhillips he just didn't have the game that Ulster needed and you expect Cooney to step up in that case and he was a little bit off the pace as well maybe a little bit intimidated by being back in the sports ground you think well it's not his first time being back in the sports ground so that can't be it (laughs) Well, it's a great result for Connacht and they host Munster next week. So trying to come away with two wins out of three for both teams, big ask. Moving on to the second leg of the Italian derby and this time Benetton were at home to Zebre and pretty much the result we expected from both legs of this fixture. Yeah, Benetton won this 28 points to 10, but it was mad. The opening portion of this match still felt like shadow boxing. It did take a while to get going, but when it did, it was pretty clear to me that Carlo Cano was continuing in the run of form that he'd had last week and this Zebra team really never looked like they were going to win this match. No, the Benetton pack were very much on top throughout the loose exchanges and the mall even though for the first half the Zebra scrum was on top. It was and Benetton have been a little bit shaky at set piece. Their line-out was a lot more comfortable but neither team was showing a whole lot outside of playing 10-man rugby. They were just about dealing with kick exchanges but then they'd run straight back into traffic again. Neither 10 comes out of this match looking good. I think one of them comes out looking slightly better. Tommy Allen, coming back into the Benetton team this week, was at least kicking his goals and not looking like he was going to fluff his lines at every opportunity. And when he made decisions, even though they're just simple ones, everything he was doing was working. Whereas Carlo Canna, on a knock on advantage, tries for a drop goal and misses. Like, that's just a poor decision and really poor execution. And that poor execution was compounded when they went a man down after a lot of ill-discipline in the first half. It really was coming and somehow Benton messed up the following line-out. They are on the rise through the table again, but they have to sort out these small errors if they really want to get into playoff positions. The trend kind of continued in the second half, with both teams getting into decent positions, but regularly fluffing their lines. 
Bennett and the luckier of the two teams. Two possible forward passes in the build-up to their try. Well, I would not call them possible, but almost definite. But they have to ride their luck and take those chances when they come in, and they did. They did. Zebre tried to do the same thing, though, and there was crazy offloads instead of easy passes. How on earth did the Zebra number 8 think an offload was the right option when he was a part of a three-on-one overlap, when he had drawn the man, and all he had to do was pop the pass off? That would have been the easy thing, but... I don't know whether it's the influence of Sonny Bill Williams in our modern game. There's too many offloads sometimes when a simple pop pass will do. Have you been talking to Joe Schmidt? (laughs) No, I'm definitely not part of the New Ireland coaching team. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness. Yeah, dead right. So with the second half starting to wind down, Benetton got yellow for a tip tackle, Porrick. Definitely a yellow, like... By the laws. Hold on a second. (laughs) I think I remember something like this from last week. (laughs) <laughs> Moving on to Clancy does Clancy things, is it? But in those 10 minutes, Benetton were on top. In all fairness, they were on top for most of the second half. They were just the better team. They were, and they got a third try on 77 minutes. And nicely, they had the presence in mind to take a quick drop goal conversion so that they could try and come back up for the bonus point. Unfortunately, they made a boo-boo. They concede a try instead of scoring one and kind of converted, which was a rarity in this match. But when we were watching this match, when that try got scored... Our clock was on 80. The match clock was on 77 minutes. This has happened the last couple of weeks where one of the match clocks is wrong and there was even a question about it at the Munster-Leinster game. It's tricky enough for a player on the pitch trying to figure out how to make decisions when you don't even have the right information available to you. As much as the Pro 14 is improving year on year and week on week, it's the small things like this with communication between ref and TMOs and match clocks and TV suppliers that just need to be sorted out as quickly as possible. It would certainly make life a little bit more straightforward. We then moved on on Saturday afternoon to the reverse fixture from the 1872 Cup. Edinburgh travelling to Glasgow and winning 16 points to 8. I could not believe this while watching it. Edinburgh, again, bullied Glasgow. It was another case of a team of good backs against a team of good forwards. And Glasgow improved their backline this week by bringing in Ali Price at scrum half and Matt O'Ali on the wing who looked more dangerous in the first 10 minutes than most of Glasgow's attacking last week. But it was really no point Glasgow having a great attacking threat at the back if their pack just weren't able to live with Edinburgh. And they just weren't. Especially in the mall when they were being driven back by miles or conceding penalties. It was. And that was in the face of some unusual refereeing from Clancy. I think there were some great catchphrases here. This is your problem. Sort it. Unusual refing by Clancy. Well, maybe that's usual. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I thought Duan van der Merwe had a really good opportunity for a try, actually, within the first 20 or 25 minutes, but just didn't quite draw the man before releasing the pass inside. And it's the simple stuff like that that Edinburgh need to work on. Their backline play in general, for me, seemed a bit staccato. Everyone seemed to stop when they were receiving the ball and giving the ball out, whereas Glasgow just seemed more fluid. And if the Glasgow backline were getting the same opportunities Edinburgh were getting, there would have been tries galore. It did feel a little bit disjointed and at half time there was only three points to six in favour of Edinburgh. However, there was another moment of genius from our refereeing team in the second half. Ali Price basically bought a mall turnover despite the fact that the ball had already come out the far side of the mall. Despite the touch just going, there it is, I can actually see the ball, the ball's here. No, no he'd already blown up at that stage or made his mind up he was going to blow up. It was and a bit silly. <laughs> it was. But from that position, Edinburgh did turn over a Glasgow scrum drive them backwards, Mata picks up the ball and one carry later, Stuart McAnally crashes over for a try. The Glasgow defence and the turnover was like sixes at sevens. They weren't set up to defend a scrum. 
I guess that's what happens. You so rarely see a scrum healed against the head that defences are never going to be set properly, but they just scrambled so slowly to get back into position. Like, it was a phase later. Like, you'd think there'd be some people on the line to actually get there to make tackles, but there was no one really there. From there, Glasgow did kick on a bit, and they spent much of the rest of the game camped in Edinburgh's line, leading to some pretty risque commentary about the Glasgow title replacement, Siu Halanuka-Nuka. If I heard it correctly, the commentator said he sounds like a character from The Lion King. Yeah, if that was said on an Irish commentary team, that's a P45 ASAP type of job. It definitely wasn't what you expect to hear in 2018. Glasgow did get a try back, but in trying to take the conversion quickly so they did have a chance to win the game, they ended up rushing the conversion and Hastings missed it. And that means they got no bonus point from this. And with Connacht and Munster both winning and closing the gap on them at the top of of our conference, that is huge. It could be the difference between a home semi-final or a home quarter at the end of the year. You have to make these points count. And losing against Edinburgh home and away was definitely not on the Christmas list. No, it wasn't. But Edinburgh made it really difficult for them. Like Their defence was incredible all game. It was. They said peace was outstanding. Even though if you had to look for who was creating the most line breaks and the most opportunities, a lot of the time it was Glasgow. But as you said, Edinburgh's defence was just able to smother that more often than not. And on the flip side, Edinburgh really weren't creating much outside 10-12. Like, it was a very contained, steady game. It was. And when you do play that game, you have to rely on being able to physically outpower your opponent. And Glasgow really got beaten up in this. They just weren't able to bring what they needed to do. And speaking of teams bringing it, Munster and Leinster definitely brought a lot to Thoman Park. And (laughs) there were fireworks in Thomond when Munster ran out 26 points to 17 winners. In a game that had a first half that, shall we say, valued aggression over skills. How much niggle can there be in a game? That much. There can be that much niggle in a game. I think that's the new gold standard for like (laughs) niggly, nasty games. Leinster were obviously upset at how much niggle there's been in Munster-Glasgow fixtures for the last year or two. They were determined to out-niggle them. The amount of penalties given away by Leinster was incredible. Ten penalties alone, and that's before you even count the fact that three of them brought two yellow cards and a red card. Yeah, and let's talk about those incidents and get them out of the way, because I think the story of this was there was a first half with a lot of indiscipline. You had a number of tackles going high with varying degrees of severity, some of which started high directly on the head, a la Healy, which is why he got the straight yellow. You had other ones where it kind of rose up or there was other mitigating circumstances. There could have easily been two or three more cards over the course of this fixture. For both teams. For both teams. Yeah, like Munster and Leinster literally went out for the first 40, almost to hurt each other. They did. And in particular, Munster went out to make sure that they rattled the Leinster halfbacks. If you can get to Johnny Sexton and if you can get to McGrath, you can throw them off their game. And that's really important, particularly given that Leinster were missing Henshaw in the centre as well. Munster just had the right level. Murray did concede his own penalty that led to a, a bit of a fight and I think he was lucky that there was a bit of a handbag there because he might have been facing yellow if that was just reviewed cleanly. But the first of the high tackles of note was by Fardy in his own 22. Munster kicked to the corner, line out Maul, over they go. And it must have been so frustrating for the Leinster coaching team because Fardy tackled a player when the ball and most of the player was already in touch. It was so unnecessary. I've never seen Leinster under this management play with such lack of focus. I think a lot of that has to come from what was happening on the field. They weren't getting the type of control that they're able to exert on teams. Munster looked really, really fired up for this and it infected Leinster's ability to play the game they wanted to play. Particularly when you're going to lose players, like losing both of your props to yellow cards in the first half is hugely disruptive both at set piece time and considering how important both Healy and Furlong are for Leinster as ball carriers, it massively changes the profile of their team. Yeah, Healy's yellow 
high tackle, that's fair. And furlongs, there'll be a lot of discussion about. But for me, it's Tracy's intervention on Clote, placing him in that position that makes furlong hit him. And so a yellow was the right outcome because he was not going to hit Clote like that if it wasn't for Tracy. I think a lot of the question here was there was clearly contact with the head. So at that point, you have to start looking for mitigating factors. And I agree with you, the way that Tracy was rucking on Clute stood him upright. So when Furlong went in for a big clean out, probably a little bit more reckless than it needed to be, he ends up hitting a head that wasn't there a couple of seconds previously. Does that mean that he's completely without fault? No. Is it a mitigating factor which probably took it down from a red to a yellow? Yes. Totally fair. The next one though, there was never going to be any mitigating factor. No, James Lowe takes out Conway in the air. That's a red. It's a red every day. He lands on his shoulder, neck, head all at the same time. It's a red. There's a whole debate at the moment about, oh, well, you're refereeing based on outcomes. I think you kind of have to referee this based on outcomes, but it is actually tied to the behavior itself. If you come into contact with somebody recklessly and creating enough of a rotation that they land in their head, that is more reckless than if you come into somebody slower with less action, which rotates them less, so they'll land on their side or hip. It's nothing to do with intent. It's nothing to do with whether it's deliberate or not. It's how careless you are and it massively affects player safety. And that has to be the priority. The referee team got that decision and all the decisions they made correct in that first half when the game needed them to be correct. We we were down at this match, but we both rewatched it because we kind of wanted to see whether it was refereed as well as we hoped it might have been. The communication between the assistant referees and the TMO was really effective. And the players. Murphy at all times was like, no, 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 no. This is what I'm saying. Now go. There was a couple of occasions where CJ and Johnny were being told to go away because he was talking to the other teams. It's good refing. Well, that was the first half. Scrappy, very much a derby, very little rugby to talk of. But in a second, it was a much cleaner game and at least there was some rugby played. There was. And I think there was only really one moment of rugby in the first half, which was the Earl's break off some really nice hands in the midfield and tricking Gary Ringrose into hitting the wrong player which doesn't happen an awful lot of the time I think Leinster had the same tactic as Munster hit the 10 and hit them hard and hit them often yeah exactly <laughs> but Earl's got around into an acre space and for me he wasted what was a very good try opportunity by going infield he had Haley and Conway breaking down the right and I don't know whether he just thought they were going to get caught that really should have been a try and it kind of went from bad to worse in the early part of the second half Leinster started to work through the gears the nice thing about losing a winger is it's the one position you can lose without it throwing your team's shape out of alignment. Especially offensively. Definitely. Leinster continued to drive through the forwards and got the now traditional Leinster line-out mall try. They are guaranteed at least one per match. I think it's in their contracts. <laughs> the problem for me was that Munster didn't capitalise on that man advantage. They didn't seem to be able to work Leinster and didn't seem to be able to draw them into the ruck to try and get numbers up situations. Leinster didn't commit to the ruck. They fanned out and they made Munster make mistakes. And Munster made mistakes. For me, Carby going forward didn't have a good game. He didn't exploit Leinster's weaknesses nearly enough. And He got scragged behind the line a couple of times as well. Probably the biggest error though was Kilcoyne butchering a four-on-three overlap by not giving the pass out. The, the great international players like Furlong is just have that awareness and ability to just abuse the space that's created. And lots of those Leinster players can do that. We'll talk about some of the strengths, but you look at the carrying of the likes of James Ryan, who always takes the ball into contact at pace. I thought Ringrose was pretty special. He was just closed down very effectively. Larmore looked a little bit unsure, but still dangerous on the ball. Problem was, this looked like it was set up for a repeat of last week. Munster were starting to creak a little bit. 
and then one moment of magic from the Munster defence, Keithrow snatches the ball and runs a 90-metre intercept try-in. And that was the end of the game, really. It really was. The game was won at that point. I think if Leinster had gone over, I think Munster would have lost. But Frawley's pass wasn't read when he passed it. It was read two rooks beforehand. Munster seemed to instinctively know this ball's going to go wide. And the second there was slow ball, they were all over it. There was three players that could have intercepted any one of three passes if it went out past Frawley. Looking back at this one, I don't think Leinster will be too disappointed with the result. I think they'll be really annoyed at the performance in the first half. That's not the way they want to play. It's not the team they're trying to build. For Munster, though, still not the performance that they wanted, but it was gritty. They were more disciplined than Leinster, and that's what won them the game. They certainly will be happy with the result. The result was all that mattered here for Munster. No one beat you five times in a row. Or is it six times in a row? It doesn't matter. Don't ever say that again. (laughs) For both teams, though, the line speed in defense was excellent. I think Munster, for me, it was about control. It was about being able to bring that, you know, the manic aggression, but on the right side of the laws of the game. Yeah, which Leinster weren't able to do. Like I said, 10 penalties in the opening half. They've only conceded that many in a game once this season. Having said that, did we see the type of, you know, boot on the throat type of putting Leinster to the sword that we would have liked? No, Did we ever think we were going to? Probably not. One team who did have a more successful away trip, Scarlets versus Cardiff. And Cardiff won 34 points to 5. Yes, that pause is there for a reason. This couldn't have gone better from a Cardiff perspective, but there seem to be two games happening here. One is the one that ended up with that scoreline, and the other is the one that played out on every other measure that you could look at. Scarlets had three quarters of the ball they had three quarters of the territory they had a team packed full of welsh internationals but then you look at this game as it unfolded and they were just unable to put anything coherent together well you mean from eight minutes on when the fireworks cleared obviously. i have no idea what happened in the first eight minutes yeah, of literally, the, game. the main camera for this match was filled with smoke for the first eight minutes nothing of note happened in those eight minutes Thank goodness. But think of the atmosphere, boy. (laughs) Think of the damage it did to the atmosphere when the smoke went to the ozone layer. (laughs) Cardiff did break the deadlock first and they got a try which was nearly disallowed for a foot in touch. Well, it should have been disallowed for hands in the previous ruck. Yeah, this was a little bit of a farce and Cardiff were awarded the try, which was good because it wasn't in touch, but was bad because it never should have been a try anyway. And that and Jonathan Davies missed one of the simplest tackles he'll ever make in his life. Yeah, really quiet game from him. He didn't seem to be able to do anything right. Scarlets did get a try straight back, though. Will Boy, their number eight, had this Hollywood offload out the back. And you don't stop Johnny McNichol from that distance. No, it was an incredible try. A great finish. And one of the few bits of positive play out of the Scarlets in this game. At times, it looked like that entire team had never met each other before. And most of them had only learned to spell rugby earlier that day. Well, Reese Patchell was injured and the Hadley Parks experiment continued. There must be very, very little faith in the other 10s in the Scarlets at camp. It looked like a team who's told that you win rugby matches by having the ball, not by doing anything with it. They didn't even seem to be throwing last passes that would lead to tries. Although when they eventually did put a crossfield kick in, Tom Pridey missed it with one of the worst displays of attacking from winger until he then messed up another try in the second half. This is not a game the Scarlets will want to watch back. The video review for this is going to be extremely painful. From the Cardiff perspective, I think they were just so able to disrupt. Josh Navidi was outstanding. Nick Williams was like a brick wall. And Turnbull got man of the match for getting over, messing up the breakdown, 
killing guys in the tackle. And the Cardiff back row having a good game is so important, especially against the Scarlets, who actually pride themselves, or well, did last season anyway, on clean, quick ball and their own turnover ball. It went from bad to worse for those Scarlets players, though, when Kieran Fonatia went off injured, Parks went to 12, and Dan Jones, who is a recognised 10, but wasn't even trusted to start this game, came on and, to be honest, evidenced exactly why he shouldn't be trusted. He had a mare of a game. He did. Well, he was directly responsible for the first try, just missing a simple one-up tackle off a scrum, off a pretty innocuous scrum in centre field. Halahalo just ran straight past him. And then Pop Tadilo, who was like, this might be the easiest try any team has scored from just inside the halfway line ever. This game nearly petered out from there. Scarlet's continue to hold on to the ball, but and in the last seven minutes... Two intercept tries. Two. Just Lilo, not good. No, Lilo ran in for a second and Anscombe intercepted another one. Cardiff couldn't have asked for a better result than this, particularly given that they rested Thomas Williams, who's been their starting nine. It's an incredible result for them. And for me, it was based off their breakdown work. They disrupted Scarlet's every single rock because they knew they'd get away with it legally. Yeah, Nigel Owens was giving both teams a lot of room to play at the breakdown, which meant there was a bit more flow in this game than some of the other matches we've talked about over the weekend. But it did mean that they were capable of preventing anything meaningful happening for Scarlet's. It's made a serious impact on the conferences, though. Scarlets, with their last few weeks of results, are starting to slip into dangerous positions, both in Europe and domestically. But part of that is down to their decision-making. They're not taking the points when they're on offer. They turned down two very kickable penalties when they were just five points behind. If Scarlets were able to edge ahead, this could have been a very different game. Yeah, especially because Cardiff really didn't create much themselves. Two interceptions, one first-phase try, and one that really should have been disallowed. Well, you have to get your tries from somewhere when you only have the ball for 11 seconds of an entire game. Oh, true. Scarlets need to be a lot more accurate than this. I mean, looking at this Scarlets team versus the team who were in the Pro 14 final last year, the team who were in the European Cup semi-final, there's something very wrong going on at Scarlets at the moment. And I don't know whether it's their coach is leaving at the end of the year and there's a bit of demotivation or the uncertainty about what's happening next year is bleeding in. We've spoken at length about the players that they lost. They need to fix this now. They need to stop the rot. And they've got a great opportunity next week coming up against the Dragons. But that's probably what Ospreys thought this week. Dragons, after putting a very good performance last week, despite losing, beat Ospreys 23 points to 22. Yes, you have heard this correctly. Dragons beat Ospreys 23 points to 22. This is not a drill. (laughs) Their first Welsh Derby win in four years. The first time they've been Ospreys in six years. I don't think anybody predicted this happening, but it does seem like Dragons have turned a corner. You asked last week, was this the new coach bounce? If it is, then it's bouncing a lot higher than we thought it might. If it isn't, it really doesn't speak positively to Bernard Jackman's time with the Dragons. You have to wonder if he had players the likes of Josh Lewis at 10, Hallam Amos at 11, Jared Rosser at 14, and he wasn't able to get performances like this out of them. What was he doing on the training pitch week to week? Flogging them, flogging them, and flogging them. He has this mad thing about fitness. And granted, for Dragons, they did seem to flag in the 65th minute. But I think if you let a team play, they'll still give you something. Well, they seem to come out with a much more tactically astute approach than I've seen them do in previous weeks. They were happy enough to soak up pressure from the Ospreys. And they kicked the leather off the ball for a lot of this game. 
they got a bit more help in the second half when they had the wind. In the first half, they just had to boot the ball back. Kirshner did really well. He pinned them back and he had a couple of Hollywood kicks as well. Some pure highlight reel stuff from him. But it seemed to work. They invited Ospreys on and for 60 minutes of this match, Ospreys couldn't do much with the ball. It seemed like everything that could go wrong for the Ospreys did. They were knocking on ball that you'd expect them to take. They weren't able to string together multiple phases of play. It was really weird, actually. Every time you heard a name you recognised, like, this was an Ospreys team with Alan Wynne-Jones, Scott Williams, Sam Davies, Justin Tipperick. This wasn't a B team, but it was playing like it was. In all fairness, the Dragons' first try came from them playing like junior Cs, not even a B team. Two professional back three players letting a ball bounce between them. Jared Rosser must have thought his Christmas presents were getting delivered late because, oh my God, was he a happy man. Well, Dan Evans was A, out of position, and B, seemed completely unable to deal with a high ball. Classically not what you look for in a fullback. And then Luke Morgan got bundled up and did his level best to chase him down. But Jared Rosser just flew past him. Don't get me wrong, the bounce of a rugby ball is unpredictable at best and cruel at worst. If you're an Ospreys fan, that was the cruelest bounce of all. If you're a Dragons fan, it was the best bounce of all. Well, they got another couple of good bounces. Elliot D got over for a really nice try. And at this point, the Dragons are coming into the last 20 minutes with a serious lead against one of the bigger sides in Wales. With a first team out. It was. And some of those players looked like they could have been doing damage. George North looked dangerous every time the ball got into his hands, but he did fluff his lines on a really, really good break that Ospreys had. And even after that, the ball got out to Morgan on the wing. What is with this tendency of floated passes to wingers? We've seen this so often, and it actually makes the type of passing that you see from the likes of Connor Murray or Reese Webb last season be so effective. That low, flat, zipped pass out wide... That's the only way to throw a skip pass. This loopy stuff leads to players having to stop and take the ball, the ball going directly into touch, the entire career of Jacob Stockdale. It just doesn't make any sense. And today it gave the Dragons defence time to get set. But they didn't have it all their own way. For the last 20 minutes, those 50-50 passes and offloads started to stick and the Ospreys showed exactly how dangerous they are, just edging ahead of the Dragons with a few minutes on the clock. But then Tovey steps up and absolutely drains a kick from out wide. His first place kick of the game. On the wrong side as well for his boot. For him to be willing to take that kick on speaks volumes for where he was at at the time. And to complete it because Sam Davies had an almost identical opportunity to win the game back for the Ospreys and he puts it wide. Much to the amusement of the guy in charge of the stadium sound effects. That horn you hear after tries, that gets blared out which was brilliant. It was very funny. Me and Oshin were legit Dragons fans for that last 10 minutes. We just didn't want them to throw it away. It was good. And it, they didn't deserve to lose this game after playing so tactically well, after shutting the Ospreys down, getting up in their face and disrupting their passing game. And most importantly, making them play all the rugby by kicking the ball in behind them all day. And you mentioned him last week, the Dragons 10, Josh Lewis. Another good game. And with so many 10s injured in Wales at the moment, who knows what his future could be like. Well, he certainly outplayed his opposite number on the day, a player with a lot more Pro 14 and international experience. And I think that experience is what you expect from the Ospreys, but it didn't bring the accuracy that would normally come with that. They just didn't seem composed. It was like they were just too thrown by how good the Dragons were. They were expecting to have to play and beat a much poorer side. They never once changed their game plan. They didn't need to because when it clicked, it clicked and they got scores from it. And it clicked when Dragons' fitness levels just dropped off. They weren't able to live with the pace of the game the Ospreys were bringing for the last 15 minutes, but they just did enough. 
and that was the result I wanted as a Kongs fan. I never believed I would have seen it, and look at the impact it has on the table. It's certainly a very different picture to last year. Glasgow are getting hunted down at the top of Conference A. They're still top on 41 points, but Munster are now on 39, Connacht on 36, and then the Ospreys on 33 and Cardiff on 32. It's getting quite tight between the top five teams, whereas in Conference B, Leinster are still running away with it on 49 points. But then second to fifth, there's a three-point gap between Ulster, Benetton, Scarlets and Edinburgh. Yeah, Ulster obviously in the lead on 33, but Benetton creeping into the playoff places after their win this week. Great to see, particularly given the shaky start they had to this season. I really hope that this year is when they shake up the conferences, because I don't like this tight one on my side. (laughs) Well, I think they would have always had to go every two years, because otherwise the number of away trips got messed up. But yeah, could be time for a bit of a change. And who knows, maybe we'll have more teams next year. The Pro 342. No, thank you. No, thank you very much. (laughs) Because at the end of the day, both conferences are still being relatively propped up by the Cheetahs, Zebra, Dragons and Kings. Having said that, the Cheetahs have back-to-back fixtures against the Southern Kings. They get bonus point wins in both of those, and they're back to within five points of Cardiff. Once again, the Christmas break always helps them. Certainly does. So that's the league tables. We now move on to our second row top performer and clown of the round. In a busy week of rugby, Porik, you've gone for our top performer. I have, and I've seen every minute of every game. And no player actually stood out for me. So I've gone for... Frank Murphy, who had the hardest job this weekend and controlled the Leinster Munster match as well as anybody could. He had a really good performance, communicated well with his team and the players that were playing, and cooled down a game that was going to blow over by half time. I think the most impressive thing for me was his communication. It's very rare that you see teams on the wrong end of 14 penalties and three cards coming out and saying that they acknowledged their discipline was the issue. And part of that was due to how effectively the referee was able to communicate with the players on the pitch. Listening to it back on the commentary, I just thought his use of the TMO was so methodical and so logical that he was able to explain to all of the players in a very credible way why he reached all of those decisions. Well, look, fans who would have seen him at Connacht would have said he's been reffing since he was playing. He was always quite a yippy player. But now he's managed to channel that into being a very, very good ref. The curse of the yippee scrum half. <laughs> but look, we'll move on. And you've selected the second row clown of the round. I have, and I'm afraid it's clowns of the round this week. Looking at those performances, there's one result that really stood out. And when I tried to figure out how Scarlets could have lost so badly at home to the Blues, I was able to find two players who between them accounted for a 20-point swing. Tom Pridey managed to butcher two of the best chances for tries I've ever seen. One from a crossfield kick that he astonishingly let bounce and it dribbled away from him, and the other one where he had an outside edge on the winger and just was so slow off his starting marks that he never got over the line. But then Dan Jones comes on, misses a one-up tackle off a first-phase scrum, and throws a pass for an intercept try as well. So Tom Pridey, with over 100 caps at like top level, manages to not score two tries, and Dan Jones, who's still a pretty experienced 10, manages to gift two tries to the Blues. I'd be expecting better off players at this standard. I definitely expect better off Scarlet's players. And that is a very worthy clown around duo. I think so. We have a look forward to next week's fixtures then. And it's the last set of derbies. Um, Benetton and Glasgow is not a derby. You do know that, yeah? It's a kind of derby? No. No, okay. it's not. Not a derby. Gotcha. Well, we have another round of real derbies for the Irish and the Welsh teams anyway. And it's the last round of Pro 14 action before the pool stages of Europe complete. 
Benetton play host to Glasgow on Saturday afternoon. Benetton will not want Glasgow's backlash, but at the same time, if Glasgow plays poorly as they have for the last two weeks, you'd have to think the Italians have a good shot. They really do, especially if they can keep it as composed and tight as they did against Zebra. Then there's a double header of Welsh derbies. Ospreys host Cardiff and Scarlets host Dragons. Ospreys will really want to get out and win this one after the result they had against the Dragons, but Sam Davies is going to need to play a lot better than he has the last couple of weeks and up against Gareth Anscombe to do it. And Cardiff actually need to create something. Can they draw? Munster and Connacht supporters would like a draw for this game, please. That would be great. (laughs) That in-conference element does add a little bit of spice, and we have the same in the Scarlets-Dragons match. I don't think the Dragons could have picked a better time to play Scarlets. No, but there must be some more backlash for the Scarlets. There has to be a raise in intensity levels or performance levels because that just won't do again this week. No, we'll have to see what happens. I wouldn't bet against the Dragons putting a third performance in a row, but it would be the first time since about 2004 that they have put three strong performances together. Then we roll on to the Irish derbies and Leinster host Ulster in the RDS. One versus two in Conference B. Annoyed Leinster after losing in Thomond versus Ulster who lost disappointingly to Connacht. You have to think there's going to be a response from both of those teams, but probably a little bit more in the tank for Leinster. The second derby, Munster travelled to Galway to the sports ground, and this is to see which team can come away with two wins out of three. We might not be talking this time next week. (laughs) If there is a podcast next week, it either means that one of us has agreed to be the bigger man, or it's also been a draw. (laughs) And at the same time as that game, Edinburgh hosts the Southern Kings as the South African contingent come back into the fold. Yeah, it's good to have the South African teams back and it'll be really interesting to see how Edinburgh react. They'll want to keep the momentum going before European rugby again. And hopefully the break has done the Kings of the world good and they've sorted out some of those discipline issues and there'll be a more fluid game. They've just been sitting doing mindfulness exercises for the last two weeks. And again next week there's one match on the Sunday and Zebra hosts the Cheetahs. I think we could see a really fired up Cheetahs come out here and do serious damage. Zebra have lost the last two weeks in a row and looked pretty poor doing it. And Cheetahs need to win this if they want to capitalise on those two games they have in hand. They need to start climbing back up this table fast. They are already in danger of missing out on a playoff spot and that's not going to be good enough given the results last year. No, not at all. Thanks everyone for listening. That's us for this week. We'll be back next week to recap round 13 of the Pro 14 and look forward to the European fixtures again. We do like hearing from you guys, so get in touch on facebook.com slash the second row or follow us on Instagram and Twitter if we're at the second row. That's 2ND, not the word second. If you're not subscribed already, you can get us on Google Podcast, Apple, SoundCloud, whatever. But until next time, that's us. So goodbye, take care, and thanks for listening. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year.